Hi, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, know that we are always glad to have you. It's our hope every Sunday that when we open the Bible, we can point you to the good news of Jesus Christ. And in fact, we think the best way we can do that is by opening the Bible and by preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. Right now we are in the Old Testament in the book of Ezra. If you're wondering where Ezra is, it's after First and Second Chronicles. If you get to Nehemiah, Esther, Job, you've gone too far. But we are in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 9 this morning. We reached the penultimate sermon, meaning we have one more to go after this. So this morning is Ezra 9, 6 to 15. Every time we open the Word of God, we have an expectation that He will speak. And so let me just pray and ask God to do that this morning. Uh, Lord, we do want to pause here, and we want to pray that You would indeed speak through Your Word loudly and clearly this morning. Whatever distractions we may have, and I would assume there's probably some pretty serious ones this morning. I know in our life there's been some distractions this week. I pray that we would be able to set those distractions aside here for a few minutes to hear from your word. God, would you help our hearts to be drawn towards you? Would you help our affections to be lifted upwards, to see you as the great treasure? God, we're praying that you would speak through your word because we know that in the midst of a crazy world, with all kinds of things happening week after week, what we need most when we gather together is to hear from you. And so, God, we are praying that your voice would be loud and clear this morning through your word in Ezra chapter 9. God, please speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't remember how often we prayed before meals in my growing up years, but what I do remember is when we did pray, we would oftentimes pray this prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. May this food by thee be blessed. Now, in the grand scope of pre-meal prayers, I don't think that prayer was necessarily a bad one. It's probably better than rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay, God, or the similarly frivolous prayer, Lord bless this bunch as they munch their lunch. But having said that, while there are certainly worse things that we could have prayed, I have to admit that most of the time when we pray that prayer, it was not real heartfelt or sincere, at least in my heart, not speaking for others at the table, but for me. Instead, for me, it was formulaic and bland and simply a necessary part of the equation to get to the more important task, which in my mind at that time was eating. But if I'm honest, I think that prayer and the way I approached it was actually pretty indicative of my prayer life in general during that period of my life. During my growing up years, I rarely prayed. But when I did, it was because, A, I needed something. God, please help me to get a good grade on this test. God, please help me to play well in this game. God, please allow this girl to say yes to homecoming. Or I would pray because it felt necessary. I would pray because it was expected of me, the prayer before the meal, bowing my head during a church service, praying the Lord's Prayer before our football team went out on the football field. In general, then, I would describe my prayer life in my growing up years as self-focused, bland, routine, and unengaged. But having said that, I suspect my approach to prayer in those years is not all that different than the way that most people approach prayer. Most people see prayer as a means to an end. God, give me something, or they see it as a necessary duty. I know I should pray, so I will. Because we approach prayer in that way, because our prayers are then subsequently oftentimes indeed self-focused and bland, prayer often seems to us more like a chore than it does a blessing. But when you start to look intently into the prayers that we find in Scripture, It doesn't take long to come to the conclusion that the way in which we approach prayer and the way in which we often pray is much different than the way that they often prayed in Scripture. And today's passage would be a great example of that reality. In Ezra 9, when Ezra prays, it's pretty clear Ezra's not praying out of religious obligation. 
He's not praying in a formulaic or bland way. He's certainly not praying with the genie mentality in which God is simply meant to grant his wishes. Instead, Ezra is praying out of necessity because he understands they need God's help. He's praying with sincerity and heartfelt humility. And he's praying with an understanding that God owes us nothing. He's not a cosmic genie. But perhaps most importantly, when Ezra prays in Ezra 9, it seems that he's praying relationally. Ezra seems to believe that God hears his prayers and cares. Now, interestingly enough, and this actually makes Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 unique, Ezra doesn't actually ask anything of God in his prayer. And yet, even though he doesn't ask anything of God, it's clear that he believes God is good and gracious, which is why he prays what he does and why he even approaches God to begin with. And in light of all that, I would just say this this morning. Given our tendency to pray bland, self-focused, self-righteous, routine prayers, Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 is much needed in terms of both encouragement and perhaps even correction. Ezra's prayer reminds us of what prayer can look like. Prayer is not meant to be something we do merely out of routine before meals or as part of a church service. It's meant to be an expression of our relationship to God, a time in which we reflect honestly on who we are and honestly on who he is, and then we communicate to him in light of those two truths. That's exactly what we see happening in Ezra 9. So here's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer is that God would use Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 to break us out of our bland, routine, self-focused, self-righteous prayers. So that said, let's stand, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Standing is just a simple way for us to indicate we believe this is God's word, and as such, it is due our reverence. So Ezra 9, our focus this morning is going to be on verses 6 to 15, but for the sake of context, we're going to back up to verse 5 here. So Ezra 9, starting in verse 5, you can follow along in your own Bibles, or the words will be on the screen here. Ezra 9, 5 to 15 says this, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our father to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today." But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. It's the word of God. You may be seated. 
Now, as is always the case, it's important for us to put our passage today in the context of the book as a whole. Ezra's not praying in a vacuum here. It's not as just he's just sitting on his couch and just, oh, I'll just pray this prayer. No, he's praying as a result of some very specific circumstances. So we need to back up and put this prayer in the context of the book of Ezra as a whole. As we've said before, the book of Ezra can be divided into two distinct sections. In chapters 1 to 6, the people of God are coming back from exile and they're rebuilding the temple. But in chapters 7 to 10, which takes place roughly 50 years after the completion of the rebuilding of the temple, the focus shifts to Ezra and his ministry. Beginning in chapter 7, Ezra returns to the land and begins a ministry of teaching the word of God. And one of the effects of that teaching ministry is that God uses his word to convict the people of their sin which is what we talked about last week in the first five verses of Ezra chapter 9. In Ezra 9 verses 1 to 5, the people of God come to Ezra because they're convicted they've disobeyed God's commands. And specifically, they've disobeyed God's command and that they've intermarried with the idolatrous people of the land. Now as we said last week, and I want to make clear again this week, the issue with these marriages had nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. God commanded his people not to marry the people of the land because he did not want their hearts to be drawn astray towards other gods. As evidenced by people like Ruth or Rahab, God was not concerned about interracial marriage, but he was very much concerned that his people be wholeheartedly committed to him, which is why he commanded them not to marry those who worship other gods. And yet, in Ezra 9, that's exactly what the people were doing. Despite the fact that the people of God had been taken away into exile and away from their land because of their idolatry and their lack of faithfulness, what is it that the people do when they return to the land? They return to the same sins. They go back to the same patterns of disobedience. They marry worshipers of others' gods, and in doing so, they fail to separate themselves from idolatry. They return to the very sin that got them exiled in the first place. And when brought to his attention, this grieves Ezra greatly. In fact, last week in verses 1 to 5, we talked about how Ezra mourned over the sin of the people. He tears his garments, he pulls his hair from his head and his beard, he sits appalled, he fasts, and then he falls on his knees and he prays to God. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in Ezra 9.6. Beginning in Ezra 9.6, Ezra prays in response to the sin of the people. And I think we can summarize his prayer in two statements. One, we are guilty of sin. We're guilty. And two, God is just and righteous, but also merciful and gracious. Now again, the really interesting thing about Ezra's prayer here in Ezra 9 is that Ezra does not make any request of God. Instead, he just focuses on these two components. We're guilty. We've sinned. And God, you are just and righteous, but also merciful and gracious. That's the content of his prayer. And I think it would be helpful for us this morning to walk through his prayer and to see those two components being emphasized. Because in doing so, I think we can learn how we might pray. All right, so two components again, two parts to Ezra's prayer. The first is simply this, we are guilty. We are guilty. In Ezra's prayer, he does not deflect blame. He does not make excuses. He does not justify the sins of the people. Instead, he simply admits, we're guilty. And this straightforward admission of guilt is everywhere in the prayer. In fact, the word guilt appears four times. And just by tracing that word alone, you can see how honest Ezra is in his admission of guilt. Look first at verse 6. This is the first appearance of the word guilt. We see in verse 6 when Ezra says this, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Ezra's talking here. Our guilt has mounted up this high. We are guilty. Verse 7, we see a continuation of the same theme. 
From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given in the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Again, he says we're guilty, and because of that, we are punished. Verse 13, and after all this, we, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. And then one more time in verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So one thing we can say with certainty as it relates to Ezra's prayer, he fully and without qualification admits we are guilty. And the fact that he does so should get our attention, should it not? We live in a world where seemingly every criminal arrested proclaims their innocence. I didn't do it. Every athlete busted for cheating with performance-enhancing drugs blames their cheating on cough medicine or bad burritos or faulty testing. Almost every politician caught up in a scandal either explains the scandal away or blames the scandal on someone else. And so because of that, Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 is both surprising and, if we're honest, a little bit startling. He's just straightforward. We're guilty, Lord. We're guilty. We've forsaken your commandments. We've not done what you told us to do. We deserve your punishment. We are in the wrong. In a world full of blame shifters and excuse makers, Ezra's prayer is completely countercultural. Without qualification, he accepts responsibility and takes blame. Now, to be clear, we should point out that we have no reason to think that Ezra himself had sinned by marrying someone of the land. But notice that at no point in this prayer does he talk about them or their sin. It's always us and we and our sin. Ezra may not have been personally guilty regarding the sin of intermarriage, but he considered himself guilty with the whole community. As one commentator put it, it's not simply that certain individuals have broken the law, but that the community had sinned in being the kind of community where such actions could occur and be tolerated. In the United States, we tend to think very individualistically, and this carries over to our spiritual lives. We emphasize the fact that we are each responsible for our own sins and our own actions. And obviously, there's some biblical truth to that. Each of us will give an account one day before God. But we're also far more connected than we know and far more connected than we're often willing to admit. And that's reflected in Ezra's prayer. Ezra's response was not, they're guilty. Do whatever you got to do, God. No, his response was, we are guilty. And the fact that he responds in that way should probably challenge our individualistic way of thinking. We tend to operate with the mindset, not my monkey, not my circus. If someone's caught up in sin, it's their business. Why should I care? It doesn't have anything to do with me. But Ezra's willingness to identify with the sin of his people should probably challenge that way of thinking. As the body of Christ, we're tied together in a unique way. If one of us is struggling, it affects all of us. Ezra does not shy away here from identifying with his people. And he does not shy away from acknowledging we, we are guilty. As Ezra says it, just like our fathers did, we've disobeyed your commands. We failed to live in ways that you prescribed. We've forsaken your ways. We are in the wrong. And so that's the first and most glaring component here of Ezra's prayer. We are guilty. But there's a second component. The second component is this, that God is just and righteous, but also merciful and gracious. 
Now, you could argue that I could have separated out those two parts of that second component to make three components. I could have said, we are guilty, one, God is just and righteous, two, God is merciful and gracious, three. But I purposely put those last two components together because I think we need to see them together. They're two sides to the same coin. Ezra certainly seemed to see it in this way. Throughout his prayer, he highlights both God's justice and righteousness, but also his mercy and grace. We're going to see the two interwoven throughout the prayer. Notice first his emphasis on God's justice. Again, verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Ezra fully admits here that it's because of the sin of the people that God allowed them to face exile and sword and shame. They got what they deserved. In fact, as Ezra mentions in verse 13, they actually got less than they deserved. Given the rebellion, God had every right to destroy them, but he didn't. And actually, it's that reality that God was so gracious that actually seems to concern Ezra the most by the end of his prayer. He recognizes that if the people continue to sin despite the grace he's shown, eventually he will pour out his justice completely. Look at verses 14 and 15 here. Shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so there should be no remnant or any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Listen, there's no way that you could read Ezra's prayer and come to the conclusion that he was convinced God was soft on sin. Or that God would just overlook all their offenses. On the contrary, Ezra emphasizes God is just. He is just in punishing us. And he is just in doing what he's done. And that's why implicitly throughout this prayer, he's calling for the repentance of the people. Because he knows if the people continue to sin, eventually God will exercise his full and righteous anger. And he would have every right to do so. So Ezra is very clear in his prayer here. God is just and righteous. Even in his discipline and in his punishment, there's nothing God has done that is unjust or unfair. And if the people do not turn back from their sin, God would have every right to consume them fully in his anger. So Ezra emphasized God is righteous and just. But he also emphasizes at the same time that God is merciful and gracious. In fact, we see this throughout the prayer too. And Go back to verse 7, then into verses 8 and 9. Verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given in the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So in summary, here's what Ezra's saying in verses 7 and 9. He's admitting, our forefathers sinned, and because of their sin, God, you allowed them justly to be taken into exile. But in your mercy, God, you rescued a remnant and brought us back. We didn't deserve that, Lord. We didn't deserve to have our eyes brightened. We didn't deserve to be revived. We didn't deserve to be brought back to the land. But you showed your steadfast love, Lord. You worked through the Persian kings to bring us back. You were gracious. And this emphasis on God's graciousness is something Ezra highlights again in verse 13 when he talks about God not punishing his people in line with what they deserved. 
So we can say this in light of what Ezra is saying in this prayer. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in Ezra's prayer, he gets that and he expresses it. God, you've shown us favor. You've treated us better than we deserved. And it's because God has extended this grace and mercy that Ezra seems to be so appalled by the sins of his people, given that God did not destroy them before, even though they deserved it, but instead showed them mercy. How could they go on sinning? How could they return to the same sin? So this is the content of Ezra's prayer. Again, it's a unique prayer in that he does not make any request of God. Instead, he simply acknowledges these two realities. We are guilty. God is just and righteous, but also merciful and gracious. And in pointing that out, I think it's fair to say this. There's a bit more depth to Ezra's prayer than simply reciting a hollow prayer at the dinner table, is there not? This is not the ancient equivalent of rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. Ezra's prayer here is honest, heartfelt, humble, and in the end, I would argue, worshipful. Or to say it another way, it's the exact opposite of bland, self-focused, self-righteous, and routine prayers. And in that way, I think Ezra's prayer challenges us to think about prayer differently and also to pray differently. And so to that end, what I'd like to do in the rest of our time together this morning is simply offer up three challenges to us in light of the way that Ezra prays here. Three challenges for us in terms of how we approach prayer. How should we come to God in prayer? Well, first, challenge number one, we should acknowledge our guilt. Acknowledge our guilt. In Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, Jesus gives a famous parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, both of them praying. Now, I think it's worth reading that parable in light of what we read here in Ezra 9. So if you want to keep your finger in Ezra 9 and turn to Luke 18, that would be great. Otherwise, you can just follow the words on the screen. That will be fine, too. But I want us to read here what Jesus says in Luke 18. So, Asa, if you want to throw up Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. All right, famous parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which I think is very relevant to what we're reading in Ezra chapter 9. All right, so Jesus is talking here in Luke 18. He says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the punchline of the parable is found in that last verse. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the parable, the Pharisee exalts himself in his own actions. I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, an adulterer, unjust, a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I, I, I. The tax collector, on the other hand, simply acknowledges his guilt. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As Jesus makes clear, it's the tax collector who has the right approach. It's the tax collector who goes home justified. Now, here's the challenging thing about that parable. I think many of us, like the Pharisee, have convinced ourselves that God is most likely to hear our prayers if we have an impressive spiritual resume. If we go to church, and if we give money, if we help the poor, if we read our Bibles, if we're kind to other people, then God owes us answers to our prayer. 
but in both Luke 18 and Ezra 9, the spiritual quality that God seems most interested in, in terms of our prayer, actually seems to be brokenness. It's an awareness that we are sinners and we stand before him guilty. What makes Ezra's prayer so powerful, and I would argue in the beautiful, is simply the humility and honesty of the prayer. God, we messed up. We are guilty. Now, church, here's the question for you this morning. When you pray, do you come acknowledging your guilt? Do you own your sin? Do you come like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Or, instead, like the Pharisee, are you highlighting your own spiritual accomplishments? God, you owe me. By the way, acknowledging our guilt is not just an important component of a healthy prayer life. I would argue it's an important component of a healthy life, period. One of my friends has a couple of boys, and when they were younger, he would sometimes take them out to breakfast to talk about man things. And in those breakfasts, he would pass along little tidbits of information that he thought might be helpful for them to know as young men. And one of the phrases that he passed on to them was this one. He said, young men take responsibility. And by that, he simply meant young men should not make excuses for or justify their sin. Instead, they should own it. They should take responsibility. Now, in retrospect, here's what I would say about my friend's advice to his boys. I think what he told them was great advice for young men, but I would argue it's actually great advice for every person. Whether you are a young man or an old man, a young, man, a young woman or an old woman, a little boy, a little girl, one of the keys to a healthy life is simply taking responsibility for your own junk, acknowledging your own sin and guilt. One of the quickest ways to torpedo a marriage or make shipwreck of family relationships or ruin a friendship or derail your own spiritual health is to live in a constant state of self-righteousness, to stop seeing your guilt instead only see the guilt of others. Now here's the challenge. The challenge with that is that sometimes others' guilt seems more obvious. Others' guilt seems more egregious. I think we would all agree there's a morally qualitative difference between someone who abuses a child and someone who gossips on occasion. Furthermore, if you're in conflict with another person, it's always possible the other person is legitimately contributing more to the conflict than you are. But be that as it may, I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind that all of us stand guilty before a holy God. Or as Martin Luther once famously quipped, we all carry his very nails in our pockets. It was our sin that sent Christ to the cross. So even if you feel like you have the high moral ground, it's helpful to remember that at the cross, the ground is level. We all stand guilty. And the best way forward, both in prayer and life, is to simply acknowledge this reality, that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners. We're guilty. So that's the first challenge here in light of Ezra's prayer in the way that we approach prayer. Acknowledge our guilt. The second is related. Challenge number two, recognize your unworthiness. Recognize your unworthiness. If we're going to understand the heart of Ezra's prayer and the heart of what makes it so powerful, I think verse 13 is key. So let's read verse 13. I'm going to spill over a little bit into verse 14 here, but verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? So in verse 13, Ezra makes this profound statement. You have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Now to understand why I say that's a profound statement, you have to put that statement in its historical context. Because of the people's sin, they'd been captured by the Babylonians. They'd been taken into exile, away from their land, away from everything they knew. 
The temple had been destroyed. For the people of God, those events were some of the most traumatic and horrific in all of the Old Testament. In other words, this is not a small punishment. It's horrific. And yet, Ezra is still able to say with sincerity, you've punished us less than our sins deserved. And I think one of the reasons we get disappointed with prayer, one of the reasons we get disappointed with life in general, is because we assume that we deserve more than we actually do. We think God owes us. Now, so I'm just going to be honest with you guys. This has not been an easy week for our family. Our son Dawson relapsed with his disease, and at times it's just been a pretty terrible week. There's some really hard days at the beginning of the week, and it appears that he's still going to be in the hospital for a while. Still there this morning. And there's no guarantee that the treatments that he's getting will work in the long run. There's no guarantee that they'll work in the short run. So it's been a hard week. And with a week like this one, there's always a temptation to let your mind run to certain places. Why is God allowing this? Does God care? Why doesn't he answer our prayers? Did we do something to deserve this? And a lot of what we read in the Psalms, I think there's some freedom to ask those types of questions. But I have to be careful that when asking those questions, I'm starting in the right place. If I'm asking those questions with the assumption that God owes me something, or that I'm entitled to his favor, or that I deserve better, then I'm treading on dangerous ground. Because here's the reality. The only thing that I deserve in the end is actually hell. Because of my sin and guilt, the only fair punishment for my sin and rebellion would be eternity separated from God. Anything better than that is better than what I deserve. So even if I thought God was punishing us through my son's sickness, which I don't, by the way, I'm actually convinced that he's providentially using it for our good. I don't know how, always, but I am convinced he's using it for our good. But even if I thought he was punishing us, it would still be better than what we deserve. Now, in saying that, though, I want to be really careful here, so make sure you hear me saying this. It's okay and right and appropriate for us to lament the brokenness of this world. I think it's okay for me to grieve that my son is sick. In fact, I think it's biblical and healthy to do so. To grieve the fact the world is broken is right, biblically. So what I'm not saying, and I want you to make sure you hear me saying this clearly, what I'm not saying is, just get over your difficulties. You don't deserve it anyway. right? You, you actually deserve worse. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that. I'm not implying that because I don't think that's biblical or healthy. I think it's okay for us to grieve. The world is broken. The world is broken. I'm not saying just get over it. You deserve worse anyway. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this. If we come to God in prayer, assuming he owes us, or if we view the world thinking we deserve better, we're starting on the wrong leg, and we're setting ourselves up for bitterness, disappointment, and anger. Most troublingly, though, we are viewing both ourselves and God wrongly. Instead of seeing ourselves as guilty sinners in desperate need of grace, and instead of seeing God as merciful and gracious, giving us better than we deserve, we start to paint a picture in our mind that doesn't match up with reality. We paint ourselves as the hero and God as the villain when the exact opposite is actually true. In our prayers, we should come to God with the humility and with a deep sense of our unworthiness. We are guilty. We deserve nothing. But in spite of that, he is gracious and kind. And he does give us better than we deserve. Which brings us to the third challenge in terms of how we approach God in prayer. And if the first two have been discouraging to you, I think this last one will be very encouraging. Here's challenge number three. We should run to God eagerly, knowing that he is merciful and gracious. 
Here's the thing about Ezra 9. Ezra is clearly aware of the guilt of his people. He's also clearly aware God could punish them and should punish them because he's just and righteous. But what's interesting is even though he knows they're guilty and even though he knows God is the one who will punish them, what does he do? He runs to God in prayer. Now why does he do that? It's because he knows that while God is just and righteous, he's also merciful and gracious. And the best thing we can do in times of trouble is to make a beeline towards him. And that's the crazy thing about the God we worship. He's the one we rightly fear because we've transgressed his commands and he has every right to punish us. And yet he's so gracious and merciful that we can run to him in our guilt with an expectation that he will respond in mercy. I want you to think for a second about how crazy that is. After committing a crime, most criminals don't run to the police station to find mercy. They run in the exact opposite direction. And yet the message of the gospel is this. The one that we should be running from is the one that we can run to. To put the prayer of Ezra 9 then in the context of the cross. God is just and righteous and he will punish sin. But because he's gracious and merciful, he sent his son to take the punishment for us. Which means that if we come to him, we can have an expectation we will find grace and mercy. Not because we deserve it. In fact, we don't deserve it at all. But rather because he is gracious and merciful. He went to the cross to take our punishment even though we are guilty and had sinned against him. That is astounding. The fact that Jesus went to the cross so that God could be both just and justifier means that we can have all the confidence in the world that we can run to him in prayer. Even when we're guilty, even when he's the one who would punish us, we can run to him knowing that he is waiting with open arms. So church, we just have to be honest here. We are guilty in our sin. In fact, every person in this room apart from Christ stands condemned. We are completely unworthy and undeserving of anything other than hell. And yet... Throughout the Bible, we are invited to come to him in prayer knowing that he is waiting with open arms. On this side of the cross, we can be 100% confident. We can approach him boldly because Jesus has secured the way for us. He died, but he rose again, and he lives to make intercession for his people. And when you understand those realities and you believe them to be true in your heart, your prayer life will be transformed. No longer will you pray bland, self-focused, routine, self-righteous prayers. Instead, you will pray in both humility and boldness. So friends, let's not take our prayer cues from cute dinner table prayers. Let's instead take our prayer cues from Ezra. Let's fully acknowledge our guilt and sin. Let's recognize our unworthiness. But in light of his character, and especially in light of the cross, let's run to God eagerly, knowing He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. God, we want to come before you this morning and simply acknowledge what we see here in Ezra 9. We are guilty. We are sinners. We've all fallen short of your glory. And we do not deserve your favor. We do not deserve your grace. And yet, we have a confidence that you will show it to us anyway because that's who you are. You sent your son to die for our sins. And so because of that, we come to you boldly this morning just asking that you would allow us to live for your glory. Lord, help us in our difficulties. Help us to trust you and run to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So on the weeks opposite of the Lord's Supper, we like to take time to pray as a church. It seems entirely appropriate in light of what we just read in Ezra 9 that we would pray.